Okay, good evening. Thanks for joining. Um, before we begin the class, just a few dedications. Uh, tonight's class was uh, dedicated, Le'ilu Nishmas, for the elevation of the soul of Harav, uh, Rebbe Nachem Shmuel David Ben Harav Shimon Alevi Raichik, uh, whose yard site was today. This is uh, Rabbi Raichik um, of blessed memory. The uh, One of the greatest uh, pillars of this community, a man who worked tirelessly and literally with total devotion and self-sacrifice to uh, instill Yiddishkeit and Judaism in our Los Angeles community, and his effects uh, are eternal, and what he has managed to accomplish, Rabbi Reichek and his wife uh, single-handedly in all this hard, hard work um, to, to inspire Yidin to Yiddishkeit. Um, so tonight is his, or today was his Yorzeit. May this uh, be, being that these uh, classes are adding inspiration and life uh, to the community, may this be just one more schus to his neshama. Without any doubt, uh, had he not uh, done his work, Mayan Yisrael would not be here today teaching and inspiring. So this is definitely a continuation of his holy work. May um, this be a big schus for his neshama to carry him higher and higher. And may this be a merit to the entire Reichik family and thanks to the anonymous uh, contribution of one of the family members. Uh, may he bring lots of bracha to the community and to, the, and to all of his mishpacha in everything, both in the spiritual and in the material. Much blessings and much bracha. Thank you so much. Another dedication was by um, Enoch Kimmelman. And this was, and this is, uh, this is on the shear and on the CD. This is in honor of his mother, Allah HaShalem, in memory, in loving memory of his mother, whose yard site is going to be um, the 15th of Shvat, which is, comes out next week, Monday, being that this is the class before, next week before Monday. So we're dedicating this class. Her name is Pesi Bas Rabbi Yechiel Meir, Allah HaShalem. May her neshama have a great aliyah, fantastic aliyah to the greatest of heights. May she channel lots of blessings to you, Enoch, and to your family for mazel and bracha and parnasa barachava and only blessings and good health and nachas from the whole family and only good things. Thank you so much for this special dedication. Last but not least, the shir this week was dedicated, the CD this week, another dedication on the CD. This was by Dr. Chaim Mbatya Cohen. And this is in honor of a great and auspicious day coming up. Um, tomorrow night, the day of Yud Shvat, the 10th day of Shvat, which is the yard site of the previous Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, um, Ben Reb Shalom Daiv Ber, um, and the day of when his successor, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, became a Rebbe the year after. So it's a day that is celebrated with great seriousness and um, it's a very, very powerful day for the Jewish people being that these tzaddikim had literally laid their lives down uh, for Israel, for the Jewish people in every way, shape and form and have such indescribable impact on the Jewish people and are leading the way to the ultimate redemption for the Jewish people. So may the merit of these two great tzaddikim these two great luminaries shine upon all of the Jewish people, uh, first and foremost, to hasten the complete and final redemption. 
and um, along with that to bring all the blessings that um, the that uh, Mashiach will bring, but to bring those blessings already down right now for healing for all those who need healing, for par- parnasa for all those that are lacking a parnasa, and for shidduchim for all those who need, and for only only blessings and anything we can imagine, and especially spiritual healing for all those who need to come closer to Yiddishkeit and find their way back to Torah and Mitzvahs. May these powerful light illuminate all of the world and uh, all of us. And I want to thank you, Chaim, uh, and your wonderful wife. And may the two of you reap tremendous blessings because of this uh, mitzvah. All right. Um, tonight, th- this week, is Parshas Bishalach. It's a wonderful parsha. There was so much to talk about, we don't even know where to, where to begin. But we're going to, this, this week, we're going to focus at the very, very conclusion of the parsha, the very end. The Torah relates the story of the war, the first war of the Jewish people, and the war against Amalek. This is going to be the first war, and this is the final battle. As it says, this is an ongoing battle against Amalek, from generation to generation, which as explained is the generation of Moshe, first generation to the last generation, the generation of Mashiach. It was only the Mashiach Tzedkenu that will eradicate the arch enemy of the Jewish people, and that is Amalek from the face of the earth. Now, let's get a little bit of the story. The Torah relates, after the splitting of the sea, the Jews began their travel in the desert. Mun started coming down from heaven. Water they got um, from a rock. And at this point, um, the Jewish people, when they didn't have any water... Uh, were questioning if God is with them. So Rashi says that God got very upset. After I've carried you like a father carrying a child, and I've taken you such, such treacherous terrain, and you wouldn't have been anywhere without me holding you by the hand. I was literally carrying you in my arm all the time, saved you from Pharaoh's uh, vicious um, military that was chasing after them, saved you from starvation, saved you from drowning in the sea, took care of every need. And you're questioning, if I'm, am I with you? You're still doubting if I'm, if I'm watching you? So Rashi gives an example of a father who's taking a child, and um, the wolves come, and he protects them against the wolves. This happens, that happens. Thieves come, he fights everybody off. And then the child turns to a by, someone who's by, is a, a bypasser, and he says, did you see my dad anywhere? He says, I'm holding you in my hands, and you're questioning whether I'm there. So the father throws the child off, from his arms, and the dog comes and bites him. So that, and then you'll know, you'll cry out, you'll know where I am. So uh, that's what Hashem does, is he leaves go kind of of the Jewish people, and Amalek attacked. Now, um, notwithstanding the fact that God kind of had pulled away and let the Jewish people on their own, the Jewish people as in general were kind of shielded and protected. They could not have been harmed because there were the clouds of glory, and the God did not take away the clouds of glory. The clouds of glory were, were, were serving as a firewall, protecting them and not allowing. It was Im, impenetrable. No one would be able to hurt the Jewish people. The problem was that there were Jews who, due to their behavior, that were not doing that which God wanted them to do, they did, the clouds of glory spit them out. And as it, did not, it did not encircle them. They were ejected from the Jewish camp. They couldn't come in. And because of that, um, because of that, they were vulnerable to attack. And it was these, what we might call 
the sinners of Israel, and these people that we might call the sinners of the Jewish people, they were the ones who were kept, who were outside of the camp, and they, and they were the ones that were attacked by Amalek. So the Pasuk says, This is in the end of the Parsha, chapter 17, verse 8, Pasuk Ches. Amalek came and waged war against the Jewish people, Berefidim, in a place called Rafidim. Good, so now we're, we're under attack. So Moshe calls his chief disciple, his great student, Yahushua, Joshua, and he tells him, Go select men, military. Go put together an army. And go fight against Amalek. So he appoints him as a general. And he should select his military armed men that will join him in this, in this, in this attack. Machar tomorrow, Tomorrow I am standing on top of the hill. Moshe says, I am going to assist you. I'm sending you out with the troops to fight against Amalek. But I will go up on top of the mountain, on top of the hill. And the staff of God, the one that he used to split the sea, the one that he used to bring them water from a rock, the one that he used to bring all the ten plagues. That rock is gonna, that, that staff, that stick is in my, heart, in my hand. And uh, that means I'm going to be assisting from way up there. Vayas Yeshua, and Yeshua does so. And the next day, they launch a counterattack. Yeshua comes out with the military. They go out. Moshe goes up with two assistants, his brother Aaron, the high priest, Chur, his nephew. And together they go up on top of the mountain. And Moshe is standing over there holding the staff. And it was, as long as Moshe was lifting his hand up together with the staff, the Gava Yisrael, the Jewish people, were gaining strength over Amalek. They were winning in the war. As Moshe put his hand down to rest, the governor Amalek, Amalek gained strength and had an edge over the Jewish people. Then the Pasik describes in verse number 12, Moshe's hands were heavy. We're getting tired. They were heavy. They took a stone. And they put it beneath him. So Moshe can sit down. Like this he was standing. He was able to sit down. And Aaron and Aaron and Chur, his brother and his nephew, were supporting his hands from the two sides to help him keep his hands raised. And his hands were kept up faithfully. Even though they might have been Tired, his hands were kept up faithfully until the sun set and they won the war. So it was a one day war. They won against Amalek. And the Pasuk says, Yeshua was weakened enough until they retreated. By the sword, and that was the end of the battle. That is, and then God says to Moshe, inscribe this remembrance, remember this, I will, that I will be waging war against Amalek forever. Okay. Now, this that it describes that Moshe is on top of the mountain, he's holding his, his, his hand up with the staff, with the stick. And it says Moshe's hands were heavy. So Rashi makes a very interesting comment on this that Moshe's hands are heavy. Rashi says, Because Moshe Rabbeinu was lazy in the mitzvah. He was lazy. Um, that he appointed someone in his place. Instead of him going out himself, Moshe Rabbeinu going out himself to wage war against Amalek, he appointed an agent, he appointed an emissary, a shliach, someone to go on his behalf. 
And because he appointed someone on his behalf, Nisiakru Yadav, that caused his hands to become heavy. In other words, what Rashi seems to be saying is, don't think that this was just a regular, natural thing that Moshe's hands were heavy. We might think that it's due to Moshe's age. Moshe was 80 years old at this time. So he's getting a little weak. and He's holding his hands up. So you might think this was a constant state that Moshe was weak. Or we can just argue and say anybody, no matter who it is, no one can hold their hands up for a long duration of time. It really, 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 really begins to hurt. I know because I'm a Kohen. And I have to raise my hands a couple of times a year. Hopefully, I'll be raising my hands every day in the base of Migdash very soon. But now we only work... Um, we're unemployed most of the time. And we only work from time to time to bless the Jewish people on Yom Tif. And it's, I have to say that it's, uh, I, I appreciate very much when people give a thank you to the Kohen after the blessings, simply because your hands really, really hurt. Um, maybe I just don't do enough exercise. But it really hurts after, you know, the time you're getting to the third blessing. <laughs> and it's terrible when you have a chazan who decides that he wants to do chazanas. And he's doing extra singing, and that it really is a lot of pain. So um, here, and that's just a few minutes. How long does it take? Five minutes. You try to keep your hands stretched out like that. Five minutes, seven minutes. And here he has to keep it. He kept up his hands all day long, 12 hours. So the Ibn Ezra says that that's the reason. Ibn Ezra does say that. Other commentaries say that. Yadana, we know, Ki we know it isn't a person does not have the ability to hold his hand up all day long. Even just a few hours. And for sure not until the sun sets. From the morning until the sun sets. So that's why it was heavy. Rashi, however, does not, is, not, is, is, is negating that. Rashi wants to say, no, no, no. It's not a natural phenomenon that his hands became heavy because he was holding his hand up for a long time. But here there was a specific kind of punishment for Moshe. Because he was lazy... And he appointed Yeshua to go on his behalf. And he didn't go himself. It is for that reason that his hands became heavy. And he was challenged to keep his hands up. Okay. Now, um, this is a little problematic. Because to accuse Moshe, and Rashi goes so freely and accuses Moshe of laziness, that's a pretty big deal to say that about Moshe Rabbeinu, that he was lazy. Especially since we find that Rashi is not so comfortable excusing, uh, accusing Moshe on laziness. We have earlier, just a little bit rewind, we go back um, three parashiyos to the beginning of the book of Shemos, the first parashiyos that we encounter our great and most cherished leader. Um, we find over there that Moshe Rabbeinu was sent by God to, on a mission to go to Egypt. He was in Midian, and he was sent by God on a mission to go and um, take the Jewish people out of Egypt. Moshe Rabbeinu comes home and he asks permission from his father-in-law because he needed permission. He had promised him that he wasn't going to leave. And he goes and he comes to pick up his wife and his children to go back to Egypt, to go back to Mitzrayim. So the Torah describes how Moshe Rabbeinu came to the hotel, to the lodging place that they were staying overnight for the day. And suddenly Moshe was attacked by a serpent who literally swallowed Moshe. And the reason that happened was because Moshe did not circumcise. They had just a brand, a baby, a new baby boy that was born to them. And Moshe did not give him a circumcision in Midian. 
And because Rashi says, because Shenis Rashel, because Moshe Rabbeinu was um, a little bit careless or lacking alacrity and, 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 and swiftness in the mitzvah, that's why he was, he was in, his life was threatened by this in, in angel who came in the form of a serpent. And Rashi says, because he did not circumcise Eliezer, his son. Because he was kind of um, careless or lacking the proper um, um, uh, concentration or, in, or investment in the mitzvah. He was punished with the punishment of death. Okay. Tanya, Amr Rabbi Yaisi. Rashi says immediately. However, we learned, Rabbi Yaisi says, Chas v'shalem. How can we say that about Moshe? That Moshe did not, wasn't doing the mitzvah the way they're supposed to. We all know how we're so careful to do a bris on the eighth day exactly when we're supposed to. And we try to do it in the morning as early as possible. So Moshe Rabbeinu did not, Loinus Rashel was not um, careless about the mitzvah. But Moshe Rabbeinu had a dilemma. Omar, he said, If I circumcise him, his baby was born. God told him to go back to Egypt. If he will circumcise him and he will then leave and go to Egypt, carrying, taking along his family, he would be putting his son in danger because the baby right after its bris is in a, just had a surgery, the baby needs to be protected. If he's traveling, that's kind of, that could be dangerous for the baby. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of, he said, till three days, it's, it's dangerous. You have to wait till the, the baby begins its healing. Should I do the, the circumcision and then wait three days and then I'm going to listen? The Jewish people are waiting to be redeemed. And God had commanded me to go. I got to go right now. I can't waste any time. So therefore, his only choice was, was to go and then he'll figure out when he can do the bris. If so, why was he punished? If it wasn't his fault. So Rashi says, name of Rabbi Yaisi, is because when he came to the inn, instead of immediately doing the bris. I guess his wife was going to stay there. So he was going to continue. But the place, we reached the malon. Malon means the place where they were staying, the lodging. Instead of him immediately giving the bris, he was first taking care, you know, to make sure if they need an extra refrigerator in the room or this or that. And he was like setting up, checking, you know, taking, Rashi said he was engaged, involved in the malon, in the lodging comforts. And because he delayed the mitzvah then, that's why he was punished. But it wasn't like he just pushed up. So you see clearly from Rashi and, 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 and that, that, that Rashi does not want to accept that Moshe Rabbeinu is lazy in a mitzvah. And we want to accuse Moshe on laziness on a mitzvah. Especially since it doesn't seem like in that Rashi over there that Rashi is given that as a second interpretation. Rashi doesn't say two things. Oh, he, number one, he was lazy. Number two, another explanation is he wasn't lazy because he didn't have a choice. Rashi doesn't say that. Rashi seems to say that the second, his continuation in the Rashi that Moshe wasn't lazy is an explanation of what he said first, that, that uh, Moshe was Nisrashel in the mitzvah, which means immediately Rashi has to say that this not should be taken uh, as it seems like that he was lazy. So we see that we do not accept that. If that's the case, how come suddenly over here, Rashi tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was lazy in a mitzvah, and he did not give his, and he did not, and he appointed someone to go do it instead of him, instead of him doing it on his own. Right? To add to that, to make matters worse, you would think that if Moshe Rabbeinu had a near-death experience, he had the serpent already, he was already swallowed by the serpent unless for his wife's quick, quick actions. Tzipora was the one who did the bris. Moshe Rabbeinu's wife, who, who did the circumcision, they saved her husband. 
So Moshe Rabbeinu was almost killed for this. So we would have expected that Moshe would have learned the lesson. That what? That you don't mess with a mitzvah. And if you got to do a mitzvah, you do it immediately. And right away. So if that's the case, you would have expected that Moshe would have already known that. And he would not have made the same mistake again. And here it says that what? That Moshe was nisrashal the mitzvah. Moshe Rabbeinu was nisatzal, he was lazy. And he appointed someone else. It's a little difficult to accept. Now, to add to this, it's not like we don't find any other explanations on, about what, why Moshe's hands became heavy. Rashi seems to take this, now this explanation that Moshe's hands became heavy because of his uh, laziness is taken from the Medrash, it's taken from the Mechilta. But there are other, Mechilta is one of the um, Midrash on the Chumash by the sages. However, there are other explanations that there are that explain why Moshe's hands became heavy, and Rashi could have used that as an interpretation. So first there is the Targum Yonasan, who goes along the lines of what Rashi does say, but slightly different. He says that Moshe Rabbeinu was punished, that his hands became um, he- um, heavy, but not because he appointed someone else instead of him, but rather because he delayed the war until the next day. He said, Machar, tomorrow I'm going up on the mountain. The fact that he waited overnight, the Jews were under attack. And there were Jews, as we said before, true, they weren't the most, uh, the finest of the Jewish people. They weren't the great, the great, uh, the great people. They, they, were, they were the, the uh, ones that were in the back of the camp, the ones at the camp that the clouds spit out, kind of, that they were rejected. But yet they're Jews. And therefore, why are you pushing this off for tomorrow? The fact that he pushed it off for tomorrow, that's what the Targum Yonason says. And that is the reason why Moshe was punished, his hands were heavy. Okay, so Rashi doesn't bring that. We can understand why Rashi doesn't want to accept that. Because that is even, that is even a greater accusation. It's one thing to say that he didn't do it himself, he appointed someone else, that's not so bad. The fact that he pushed it off and the job did not get done, that which needed to happen got delayed because of laziness, that would have been a far greater accusation against Moshe. Now obviously Rashi doesn't want to learn that. And we can understand why we don't have to accept that. Because it makes perfect sense why they only launched a counterattack tomorrow, because they just put together an army. You're, dealing, you're not dealing with the people that had already a military, they're ready instantly for combat. They just came out of Egypt, they were a group of slaves. Yeshua is just, there's not a seasoned army ready for attack by the drop of a hat. Yeshua had to start picking and selecting people that are going to go out to fight. So we can understand that they needed to have a little bit of time until they organized themselves. So we don't have to accuse Moshe Shalom for the fact that he said it's going to happen tomorrow, that that is an accusation. And so Rashi doesn't want to learn like the Targum Yonas. So therefore Rashi prefers to say that there was another guilt in Moshe. He saw to it that it got done, but not by himself. He did it through someone else. The problem is that we do have another interpretation. Now, other commentaries who say, and this is the Psikta, Psikta is another form of a medrash, the Psikta Rabbah, where it says over there that, um, and also from the Zohar, as we'll see in a moment, where it says over there that the reason why Moshe's hands became heavy was because the sins of the Jewish people. It wasn't Moshe. It was because Moshe is the leader of the Jewish people and he's intrinsically tied to us. And when we, when we were, were lacking in virtue, when the Jewish people were guilty, 
And as we just said earlier, the Jewish people doubted God. That's what brought about the whole, um, that's what brought about the whole uh, war of Amalek. The entire attack came because they doubted God. So the Jews had sinned. They were lacking in their Ramunah. So because of, so, and that's what caused Moshe's, to be, Moshe's hands to be heavy. There's a very interesting Zohar. Where the Zohar, so again, this says in the Medrash, in the Pesikto, but the Zohar also says this. The Zohar, Reish, Ayn, has a very nice thing happened. This, uh, the Lakuti Sichas, quotes um, the Zohar. And he didn't quote, he just says, in the footnote, he says, look in the, I in the Zohar. He says, look in the Zohar. So I like to look things up, the sources, because they, they enrich every subject very much when you look up the sources. So I took out the Zohar to, um, to look this up. Now, the Zohar is three chalakim. Chelek Aleph, Chelek Beis, and Chelek Gimel. Um, first portion of Zohar is on Bereshis. Second portion of Zohar is on Shemos. When it says Chelek Gimel, it means Vayikra Bamidbar Devarim. It's all three is one Chelek. So here it says, look in Chelek Beis, which is in Shemos. Daf Reisha Ein Ches, page 278. So I took out the Zohar, and to my disappointment, I see the Zohar ends on page 268, not on 278. So I couldn't figure out, like, where am I supposed to look for the Zohar on 278 if there's no page 278. Then I see that in the back, it has little um, omissions. It's called hashmatois, which means omissions, which means things that were remitted and they're printed in the back. So I figured maybe there'll be a chance that I'll find it in, the, in, the, in things that have been omitted. But I see there's like 30 pages of omitting, and I have no idea where to look, how I'm going to find this page. And I didn't have much time, so I was going to give up, but it was funny. I just took it and opened and my eyes went right to this. And I was so happy. I said, well, with the divine providence that I have to share the Zohar. Uh, because it, it, I knew it wasn't my merit. It was the merit of everyone over here to hear this. The Zohar is very beautiful. The Zohar is talking about, connecting to what we were talking about earlier. It's talking about the Kruvim. It's talking about the cherubs in the Beis Amikdash that had their wings. So the Pasuk says, we spoke about it last year on Pasha's Truma, that the wings of the cherubs should be up over their heads, shielding the kapores in the Holy of Holies. The wings were, they were looking at each other. The Zohar says that this wasn't, this wasn't the natural state. It, the, the, the wings were always up and down. When, when at certain times the wings were up towards each other, other times, and the, and the, and the phases, the face of the Kruven were looking at each other, and other times they turned away from each other. When Jews were doing God's will, and when God, when God was felt intimate with the Jewish people, because our, our, we were connected to Him, then God and Israel are looking at each other. So this manifested in the two cherubs and the two kruvim looking at each other. But when we weren't doing the God will of Hashem, that the kruvim turned away from each other. And the wings were not soaring. So um, the Zohar then describes, you shouldn't wonder, there's a piece of gold, how does this happen? So the Zohar says, well, you understand, when God dwells in something, then it comes alive. And the Zohar says, take a look, if Moshe's stick, if Aaron's stick, that he throws in front of Paro suddenly is a, is besides turning into a snake, but later as a stick, it staff, it went and swallowed all the other snakes. That means because if Hashem imbues it with life, it's alive. How much more so these two Kruvim that are always meant to facilitate, to be the dwelling place, the Merkava, so to speak, where God dwells, that they're full of life. Then the Zohar says there were other signs that indicated whether Hashem is found of, found of the Jewish people, whether Hashem, whether we are finding favor in God's eyes. So the Zohar says there are three things that point to, that the Jews were able to see. In the Beis Amingdash, when the time when Jews were doing the way, when we were, when we were serving God the way we we're supposed to, they can see the smoke that would go up from the carbon, from the carbonus, they would, it would go straight up, and no wind can push 
the, the smoke in any direction. And you can literally see this straight pillar of smoke going up all the time. When we weren't doing the will of God, that didn't happen. The other thing was, we can see it also in the fire. When we were doing the will of Hashem, the fire that came down to consume the sacrifices on the altar was in the image of a lion. When we weren't doing the will of God, the fire that came down to consume the karbanos, believe it or not, was in the image of a dog. The Zohar says. It was the image of a dog. It was either in the image of a, fi- a lion when we were doing the will of God. Then it says another thing. The Kohanim immediately knew, the priests in the Beis Amigdash, in the temple, knew whether the Jews were worthy in God's eyes because they can feel it in their hands. If the Jews are worthy of a blessing and it was time and God's that Shekhinah was dwelling, so immediately when they came to rise their hands, their hands were lifted up like as if it was like pulled up and it was absolutely weightless. And they can hold their hands up for a while as if there was no weight. And because the Shekhinah, their hands were alive, the Zohar says through the ten fingers, the Shekhinah is dwelling on their hands. It was unbelievable. If the Shekhinah is not dwelling because the Zohar says a lack of the deservance of the, of, the, of the people for the blessing, so the hands felt heavy. I always blame myself. I'll blame myself. Everybody's for sure worthy for a blessing, but it always bothers me. <laughs> My hands hurt me, and I think, okay, I'm not worthy. Um, but in any case, um, the, 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 um, so then the Zohar says, and the Zohar points to, like by Moshe, like by Moshe, the reason why his hands became heavy and they weren't kept up was because the Jewish people were lacking in the Muna, they, they, didn't, they, they sinned, and that's why the Shekhinah departed. Moshe's hands were heavy. That, that's what it says. So you see clearly that there is an explanation in which we can take the blame off Moshe. And this wouldn't be a, something strange to say because Rashi himself had already told us a few verses earlier that the reason why the Jewish people were vulnerable to attack in the first place was because the Jews doubted God. They said, Ayesh Hashem is God. So Rashi told us already that the Jews sinned. And that's why the... the uh, so you can say that's why his hands are heavy. Why do we have to go ahead and say something disparaging about Moshe that he was lazy? In addition to that, we find later in Chumash, Parshas Pinchas, that's in Bamidbar, we're going to study that in the summertime. So there it says that Moshe Rabbeinu is realizing that his end of his life is nearing and that God is telling him to prepare to leave this world. So Moshe Rabbeinu asks God, okay, we got to, we got to start thinking of a leader, of a successor, someone who's going to lead the Jewish people. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, Yifkoi delokim malokai aricho aruchais, a God, the, the, the God of all spirits should appoint on the Jewish people a leader, so that the Jewish people should not be like a flock without a shepherd. And um, he says, a man who should, a man that should take them out, and he should break them, bring them in. So Rashi says, what does he mean a man that should take them out and take them in? So he says, Moshe is saying, he sh- it should be a leader that he himself goes out to battle, to war with his people. And not like the king's of the Gentile, the Gentile kings, the other nations, who are the kings, stay in their own palaces, and they send out their soldiers to be massacred on the battlefields, and they don't put their lives on, on, uh, at risk. But this should be like a, a Jewish king, who knows that he has to be with his people, and he himself goes out. We know that King Saul, the first king of the Jewish people, died 
at war. He was killed at war because he himself went out to fight. So Moshe says, I'm looking for a leader who will be a true leader, who would join in battle and won't sit back. And Moshe continues, Rashi continues, and Rashi says, and like Moshe says, like I myself have done at the war of Sichon and Og. And the war of Sichon and Og, 40 years later, right before the Jews entered the land, so Moshe Rabbeinu fought the two giants, he himself fought the two giants. He went out to battle, and he himself killed Og. So Moshe says, like me, I didn't send the people out, I went myself. So you see clearly that Moshe Rabbeinu knows that you don't, that a true leader goes with his people out to war and he doesn't send them out on their own or with someone else. So how do we reconcile this with over here, Moshe not going, and Rashi says he's lazy. And not only that, Moshe Rabbeinu uses himself as an example that I know that that's what you're supposed to do. So how does it fit with what we're saying over here that Moshe Rabbeinu is lazy? So it doesn't make any sense. So again, this is not just a question of how come Rashi can say he's lazy. The question over here is a deeper question. How do we understand why did, why did Moshe send someone else if Moshe himself says that a true leader is someone who will go out with his army? And here he sent someone else. So obviously we need some clarification about what's going on over here. So the idea is as follows. We have to distinguish between the... We have to look carefully at the words of Rashi. Rashi says that Moshe Rabbeinu was nis'atzel b'mitzvah. He was lazy in the mitzvah. Rashi changes the word of what he used in Shemos when he's speaking about Moshe's uh, lack of alacrity in giving the bris and the circumcision for his son. There Rashi uses the word shenisrashel Moshe. Moshe was nisrashel. Nisrashel, as we said before, means a little bit more like careless, lacking. He was lacking attention. It was irresponsible, kind of. And over here, Rashi uses the word, changes the word, nisatzel. So hisrashlus and atzlus. Two words that generally are interchangeable, mean generally the same thing, but the fact that Rashi changes them around is a sign that he's selecting them on purposely. Another difference is over there Rashi just says shenis rashel. He doesn't say b'mitzvah, shenis rashel. Over here Rashi says, over here shenis atzel b'mitzvah. He was lazy in the mitzvah. So what's the difference between nisrashel and nisatzel? Atzlus and nisrashlus. What's the difference between in the translation. Hisrashlus means a general laxness, a general looseness. When a person is lacking seriousness to something, certain, certain like looseness, lacking the seriousness or the, 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 the sense of responsibility. That's what you call hisrashlunus. Um, and, and, and obviously, if a person is lacking seriousness, then there's many things that are going to go unattended. You know, they just, whatever. That's called Israshlis. So it's not about something particular. It's a general state of, of, of being loose, so to speak. Um, atzlus, atzlus, lazy, is more particularized when you're lazy to do something. Like lazy to get out of bed. The Pasuk says, atzlus, lazy one, admasai tishkom, how long are you going to be lying in bed? Lazy to go somewhere, lazy to do something. So it's not, over here we're not saying that Moshe Rabbeinu is in general loose, like Rashi says over there. Over here he says it was a laziness, which means towards one particular thing. And in this itself, Rashi is very careful to say, he's lazy not because 
God forbid Moshe is lazy, but he's lazy b'mitzvah. Which means, due to the severity of this mitzvah, as we're going to see soon, there is, because of the severity of the situation, it is considered lazy. It's not a real laziness, God forbid. There is a touch, a touch of laziness over here. So what is that touch of laziness? And what do we mean by this? So let's understand something. Moshe Rabbeinu, being the quintessential leader of the Jewish people, he is the guardian of Israel, he is now coming out, he's in charge over the people, Something terrible happened. The Jewish people came unexpectedly under attack. From Amalek. Moshe Rabbeinu has to act very quickly. Quick thinking of a leader. He can't make any mistakes. Because he is in charge. He has to do the right thing. Courageous thing. And what is correct to do. So Moshe Rabbeinu has to immediately evaluate the situation. What needs to be done? Obviously it's understood that we can't let this go just like this. We can't sit back like a lame duck and let the Jewish people be attacked. We have to fight. And Moshe Rabbeinu um, sends an army. Okay, the army has to be qualified. So he tells Yeshua, go ahead and select military men. Rashi says, the people that are being selected have to be strong men. So they actually went and selected Giborim, strong people. Rashi also says, Yirei, those that are fear God. Two things. They have to be strong physically and strong spiritually as well. Okay, we'll see about that soon. And, um, and then you have to have the general. Those are going to be the people. Then you're going to be the, the officer and the general who's going to lead this military, uh, this military offense. So, who, who, so who's fit for that? So Moshe Rabbeinu was an elderly person over here. He was 80 years old. Now, notwithstanding, we'll soon see, by the, in the war against Sichon and Og, Moshe Rabbeinu was 40 years old. There he was almost 120 years old. Right? So here Moshe Rabbeinu, but he's 80 years old. Is he the best fit candidate to be the man on the field? Is he the best fit candidate to be the one in charge of this, of this operation? Yeshua Binun was according to two opinions. According to Seder Hadoros, 42 years old. Or according to another opinion, 56 or 57. So based on his age, he is far more qualified to be, the, to be, to be leading, to be a general at war. Moshe Rabbeinu is an elder. And we know according to Torah, this is not just. According to Torah, there is an age that a person is fit for military service. From the age 20 to the age 60. That's when a person is in their prime strength. After that, you start becoming a little sluggish. And therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu is evaluating the situation and thinking, I am not the best candidate to be the one who's the general at, at, at war. But obviously, the question over here is, this is not a regular war. You're fighting over here a war after the Jewish people just came out of Egypt, and obviously everything that's happening is miraculous. So we are running on a whole different system. But that's exactly the point. Moshe Rabbeinu, who is spiritually in tune, who can sense even the tiniest little thing, sense something very, 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 very important. And that is that he sensed that God had pulled away. He knows that. He senses that. You see, we just came out of Egypt. And God was literally carrying the Jewish people, like we said earlier, like a father is cuddling a child, carrying him. 
God fought the war for them when they stood by the Yamsuf. He, he, he brought the ten plagues. Then he split the sea. And Moshe Rabbeinu says to the Jewish people, Hashem Yelochem Lochem, God will fight for you, Viatem Tachrishan, and you be silent. You guys don't have to lift a finger. Nothing to do. God took them through the Yamsuf, decimated, destroyed all of the Egyptian army. Miracles after miracles gave them food from heaven, daily lunch, right? Dinner. <laughs> it all came miraculously from above, water from a rock. Unbelievable. But right now the Jews lost that. Because when they doubted God, what happened? Rashi says clearly that Hashem took his child like a father and he throws him off him. And he says, you're asking, you don't know that I'm around? Let me see, you'll be on your own, then you'll know where I am. Rashi said, the dog came to bite him. So clearly that means that the divine assistance went away, which means Moshe doesn't give up. He doesn't get bewildered, he doesn't panic. He knows that's why he's there to manage the Jewish people at this point when Hashem is stepping a little back. But he's got to make decisions that are appropriate to the situation. And the situation is going to call for a natural approach, not a miraculous approach. Because the miracles might be a couple of yards away. They're not as present because Hashem pulled back. So therefore, being that we're going to have to approach this strategically from a, mil- from a military um, um, success, uh, evaluation, success this, uh, evaluate this properly, Moshe sees, I am not the right man to be the one at war. Now we can't compare this to the war of Sichon and Og 40 years later, where there Moshe Rabbeinu did fight, and not only that, he did some pretty, pretty awesome um, things. Moshe Rabbeinu was like Superman. He went and he jumped, as Rashi says, 10 cubits high, and he banged Og. He hit Og with a stick, with a super giant, and he knocked him down. It was like, it was very, 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 very impressive. But you can't compare it. Because over there, God clearly tells Moshe Rabbeinu, don't be afraid. Ki nasati I have given him into your hands. Which means God says, I'm backing you up. Since God is backing Moshe up, there's nothing to be afraid. Over there, you understand that the rules of confrontation, the rules all change when God is there behind you running the show. But if you have to do it on your own, so then you got to work through in a logical way. So Moshe Rabbeinu, based on his logic, realizes he would best not be the leader of this, of this war. Let Yahushua take, take this responsibility. Now, however, and to add to that, we realize that it wasn't only that Moshe should not be on the battlefield, because he might be a liability there instead of being an assistance, but even more than that, Moshe Rabbeinu realized that there is other work that needs to be done. In other words, in addition to the physical battle that is going to be fought on the ground, there are the spiritual aspects of the war. And that is to elicit God's mercy and God's help from above. Because even though we said right now that this was going to be more of a natural war, and this wasn't a war where God says, you be quiet and I'm going to fight your battle. It wasn't a war fought with angels in heaven, but human beings below had to fire their rifles and fight the war on their own. True. But yet, everything we do in our lives, even when God expects us to do things naturally, like going out and earn a living, 
we still all the time pray and ask for Hashem's assistance. Because without siyata deshmaya, which means help from heaven, we can't lift a finger. We can't be successful in anything. So being that there is another part to this, which is you need to get God's assistance. And that is through prayer. So that's why Moshe, and who is more qualified than Moshe to do that? So Moshe Rabbeinu is going to participate. He's going to participate in the way that he is most useful. He's not so useful on the battlefield. He's an 80-year-old man. Let's send someone in, much younger, qualified to do that. Moshe, you do what you do best. Go on top of the mountain and pray. We also find, I mentioned earlier, Rashi says that when they selected the army, Rashi says that who did they select? Bachar Lano Anashim, choose. Rashi says, Giborim. They should be strong people. Vierechate, and those who fear God. Because you got to cover all your bases. They have to be strong militarily. Why? Because they're fighting down here. And they have to fight, and they have to be God-fearing people, that they should be, the, they should be proper vessels for God's blessings. They should be a clean vessel. If there are sins, then the sins can get in the way. So you see clearly that there was both elements. Now to add to all of this, Moshe Rabbeinu, in addition to that, went up on the mountain, and Moshe Rabbeinu was fasting. Rashi says the reason they went up with three people, from here we learn out that every fast, when you're having a fast day, and you're going to pray to God, that you should have more than one chazan. There's a chazan and two people accompanying him. Rashi brings, I don't know why we don't do that exactly today, but there is that thing that you don't, Aaron V'chur, hold on over here. Uh, yeah, you need three people to walk, to go in front of the, to, oh, maybe we do that, Yom Kippur, actually we do do that. Yom Kippur, when we take out the Sefer Torah by Kol Nidre, the chazan stands, and he stands with two people on his side, like we got to, they're okay, say so it's a base and I'm not sure for the same reason, but this is the idea. So therefore, and, and Rashi says they were fasting, so Moshe fasted. So if Moshe Rabbeinu was davening and he's fasting, fasting wouldn't either help out for, if he has to be on the battlefield, and he's at the same time fasting, when you're fasting, you're not exactly at your best state of physical strength. It's actually a law. It's a law, it's a halacha. That when a, that when a Jewish town or a city is under siege, and the people in the town have to go out and fight off their enemies. It is forbidden to any well-enabled men, all those that are militarily capable, it is forbidden to them to fast. We would think, that's the best thing, you should fast and do tshuva. No, you have to go out and fight. You have to go out and fight. And whoever is going to stay back in town, whoever is staying and is not going to war, they can do the fasting on everybody else's behalf. But those that are going out to fight are not allowed to fast. By the way, this is very cute. It says by Esther, we know that there is a fast called Tainus Esther. It's our next public fast. The fast that we fast before Purim. The reason why we fast that day is because, Shulchan Aruch says, because on that day was when this was the 13th of Adar. That was the day that Haman had initially set as the day of the slaughter of the Jewish people. And when the armies... Now, even though Ahasuerus had given the Jewish people permission to fight back and arm them and help them, but yet Haman's letters and the anti-Semites were still ready. The mob was ready to attack. So the Jewish people had to go fight. And on the 13th of Adar was that war. So come to now, who went, who went into battle? So the men went to fight for sure. How about the women? 
So the Lubavitch Rebbe says something really interesting. He says that since this is a war against Amalek, and it's a called Machemes Mitzvah, it's a war of Mitzvah, he brings from the Rambam that in a war of a Mitzvah, everybody has to help out in the war, even though the men are maybe the ones that are fighting, but the women have to be the ones preparing provisions and taking care of the wounded. The women are involved and the men are involved, and even the children have to do whatever they're doing. So every single person was, therefore because everybody was engaged in the battle. So no one was allowed to fast. The only one who wasn't fighting in that war was Esther the queen. So she was the one Jewess who can fast for everybody. That's why he says it's called Tainus Esther, because the original fast was Esther alone. She was fasting. He says it, Bederich, I think, Tzachis, meaning in a way of more like a joke. Like, but he says, possible. That's why it's called Tainus Esther. Because on that fast, only Esther fasted on behalf of everybody. Now we fast. But <coughs> in any case, back to what we're saying over here. If that's the case, Moshe Rabbeinu is fasting, he's, if he, and he needs to fast, because he has to elicit Hashem's divine mercy. He's praying for the Jewish people. So of course, we understand that he can't go. And to add to that, when Moshe was on the top of the hill, and he was holding his staff up, that was to cheer on the soldiers. He was their fan. He was, he was cheering them. They, when they saw Moshe Rabbeinu on top of the mountain, and they were looking up, and they saw him, that gave them courage to fight. That inspired them. The Cheskuni says that. The Cheskuni says um, very nice words. He says, um, where is it over here? Kadeshi Yeruni Anche Achail on the Pasuk, the people of the military, the, the, the army should see him, to strengthen their heart to the war. Because this is the way, in, in a war, he says, the way it is. One of the strong men goes up to a high place and holds up the flag. The soldiers see the flag and they know who they're fighting for. They're fighting for their king. They're fighting for their nation. And that's what gives them the strength. If God forbid they see the, the flag falling and it's down, half staff or down, that completely demoralizes the people. And they all flee and they run. So Moshe Rabbeinu being on top of the mountain was actually assisting the army with that. And especially what the Mishnah says in Masechus Rosh Hashanah, that when the people were looking up on top of the mountain, the Mishnah asked the question, Are the hands of Moshe making war? Or are Moshe's hands breaking the war? Because it says when Moshe's hands was up, they were winning. So the Medrash says, no, it's not that. The Gemara says. Instead, at the time when the Jewish people saw Moshe's hands, and they were looking upward, and they were surrendering their hearts to their Father in heaven, they were winning. Moshe put down his hands, and the people stopped concentrating and doing tshuva, and submitting themselves to being good Jews, to serving God. That's when they lost. So we see very much, and very clearly, that Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't, disengaged, not involved. He did whatever was in his abilities to do and what he would be most effective doing. To add to that, one more very important thing. And that is that there wasn't, there wasn't even a commandment. Because you can ask a question. Was there an explicit divine commandment? Rashi says he was lazy in a mitzvah. But was there a mitzvah? Did God tell Moshe Rabbeinu, go and fight against Amalek? 
Now, the Pasuk doesn't say that. Pasuk says the Amalek came to attack the Jewish people. It, do, it doesn't say anything about Hashem over there. It just says, as Moshe sees the people were attacked, Moshe talks to Yeshua and tells him to go out to fight. It doesn't say that this was by the instructions of Hashem. So there wasn't a clear mitzvah over here that he should do this. Now, there is an indication, I do want to clarify this, there is an indication later in Arashi that this was by divine instruction. Because Rashi says when it says Yeshua weakened the people. So Rashi says, what does it mean he weakened the people? Rashi says that he injured them. No, he killed the strong ones, but he left the weak ones. He killed their real strong warriors of the Amaleks, but he left the weak ones. Now that doesn't make any sense. If you're already killing the strong ones, you should for sure kill the weak ones. So Rashi says, you see from here that it was by, the, it was by divine instruction that what? Uh, that he was listening. God, I guess it wasn't time to destroy Amalek completely in the world. It was going to be for whatever reason. Amalek is, has to be in the world till, the, till whenever. And therefore, he gave him instructions not to kill them all. So you see that, the, that this war wasn't just Moshe and Yeshua. There was instructions from on high coming from Hashem. However, if you look carefully, the Mechilta, which is the Medrash, says a little different than Rashi. The Mechilta says that you see from here that the war was based on God. Hamochama, that, that this war, the Mochama was... Rashi doesn't say the war. Rashi just says that they did based on God's command, which, is, which is, seems to imply that Rashi is not saying necessarily that the war was fought based on God's command. It could be they went on the war on their own initiation. Well, it seems from the Pasuk. It's once they were fighting the war, instructions came to Moshe to tell Yeshua not to, not to kill them all, but to leave the weak ones and only to kill the strongest. Whatever it is, it doesn't say anywhere that this was a clear divine, a godly mitzvah. What then? But it's self-understood that when your people are being attacked... And when Jews are being are, are, are vulnerable, Jews are being hurt, that you, that you have to defend them. So therefore it's clear that the Moshe Rabbeinu knew that he has to go fight this war. But since there wasn't an, an explicit instruction from Hashem to go fight, it was only something that he was doing because as a leader he realized that this is what needs to be done to save, to save the people. So therefore, and Moshe calculated based on his evaluation of the situation that the best thing for him to do is to send Yeshua out to oversee the military operation. He would go on top of the mountain to take care of the spiritual matters, to inspire the Jewish people, and that would be the best thing. If so, why are we blaming Moshe? If so, what is Rashi saying? And over here, so the explanation is... That even though this is all true and this is all correct, but the way God saw it, God says, I do see a laziness in the mitzvah. Even though I'm not commanding you, I didn't command you to go out and fight, so there's no explicit mitzvah. I didn't command you. But when Jews are being attacked, when a Jew is being hurt, someone is attacking the Jewish people, you have to go fight. That's the, and, and even, I don't, have to, I don't have to tell you a commandment, this is self-understood, that you protect your people. So Amosha Rabbeinu did that, but this, is, but this is a real mitzvah. Without it being said, and even before the Torah was given, this is still before the Torah was given, this is enough reason to go out and fight, and this is a mitzvah. 
And here is the problem. Here is the problem. Moshe Rabbeinu acted rationally, logically. He did all the right moves. And did exactly what he was supposed to do. What we are saying over here, the criticism on Moshe, which is very subtle. The criticism on Moshe was that when, when something like this happened, when there was an attack against the Jewish people, you're a little too calculated, Moshe. Over here, you should have gone into, this should have upset you so much that your fighting back should have been fought back in a manner that you transcend your logic and transcend your reason and act beyond the measure of the mind. A little too much calculation over here. You should have been the one that would go out and war yourself. Avram Avinu was older than you, no? Avram was at that time... Oh, the time, the time of war with, with Lot, the truth is I'm not sure exactly what Avram's age was when Lot was taken in captivity, he was 75, he could have been around 80 years old, but Avram himself went to war, right? He ran and there too didn't make any sense, he's fighting against four, didn't even have an army, him and Eliezer, he went and he fought, because there was no rationale, there was pure amuna, there was pure faith. Actually, I saw something very beautiful, it says by Avram, when Avram came to fight the, the war, it says that Og was the one who told him. This big giant Og. Oh, we just spoke about Og before. Moshe killed Og. So it says that Og came, came to um, tell Avram that Lot was taken in captivity. Suddenly, why is this Og, this big tzaddik, that he's trying to help Avram out? So it says that Og wanted to marry Sarah. Sarah was so beautiful, he wanted to abduct her. He figured that when Avram is going to go to war, Avram is going to get killed. And therefore, he's going to be able to, he's going to, be able to snatch Sarah for a wife. The question is, how was Og so certain that Avram was going to do something so suicidal? That he was going to go out to war? So Rashi says the reason why he's called Og, why is he called Rashi? No, I don't think Rashi says. The Medrash says the reason why he's called Og is because when he came to Avram, Avram was in the middle of baking matzah. And matzah are called ugot. Uga, uga is a matzah. So he was seeing Akash was Pesach, and Avram was baking matzah, was Erev Pesach. So from there we know, so that's what gave him the confidence. Because matzah, the Zohar says, is called michla de mehem menusa. It's the food of faith. When you crunch matzah, you're ingesting faith. So when he knew that Avram is eating matzah, Avram is now supercharged with amuna. Amuna means beyond reason. Amuna is super logical. You go beyond your mind. This is the expectation of Moshe Rabbeinu. At the time when the Jewish people are attacked, these are your children, these are your people, of course he has to make, he has to use, he can't lose his mind completely, but the, the drive and the fervor has to overtake him to the point where he will do things beyond the, 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 the cold calculations of the mind. And he should have gone out himself. I, we said earlier that what? That he has to pray, and Moshe has to daven, and he's fasting, and he has to daven. Moshe could have gone out to the battlefield, and he could, have taken, he could have taken God's stick with him. And in the battlefield, he would have stopped for a minute and he would have prayed. How do we see that that's good? Where do we see that that works? We find when the Jews would go, this week of the parasha, when Moshe Rabbeinu was standing by the Yamsuf, when the, when, when the Jews were panicking because the Egyptians were coming closer and they were being cornered by the sea, the Jews cried out to God. And Moshe started dominating. Rashi says, Moshe was davening. And Hashem said, this is not a time for prayer. My children are in trouble and you're praying. 
Tell them to march. Tell them to go. So you see that not always prayer. Prayer, you can do your little prayer. Do a short little prayer. He could have done a tefillah katsara, a short prayer, and been there with the people and fought the war. And that's what he should have done. Beyond all calculations. Beyond all reasoning. That is a little bit lacking. It's similar, you know, where we find the same thing. It says the Nesim, the uh, princes of the Jewish people, um, were, were later, when they, when they made the Mishkan, when the Jews were building the tabernacle, everybody brought gifts, everybody brought stuff, and they built the Mishkan. And then it says that the last things that were brought were the, pre, the, 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 the princes of each tribe. Um, each one brought a, a, the stones for the Choshen. They brought the stones that went in the breastplate, precious gems. So the word vahanesim is missing a yud. You look in the Chumash, it's missing a yud. So Rashi says, why is it missing a yud? And Rashi says, because the Nesim were lazy. Why were they lazy? Because they, when, when, when the mitzvah came that everybody should bring, they said, let everybody donate whatever they will donate. And we're going to, whatever is lacking, we're going we're gonna to give whatever is missing. Meanwhile, the people went and they brought everything. So there was nothing lacking. So in the end, God gave them one thing. But because they were lazy... So the question over there is also the same thing. How can it be that the Nesim were lazy? And the answer is over there too, they were doing the right, they did the right moves based on intellect and calculated, they did the right thing. They realized that they're the Nesim. They are the leaders of the Jewish people. Their main job as a leader is to make sure that their constituents, their, serve, their, their people, their, 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 those who uh, are under them will, will do the mitzvah. So they're concerned about their, their people. And they did that. Everybody should give whatever they gave. If so, what are we complaining about then? And the answer is, when we're talking about creating a home for God, that is supposed to excite you to a point where you go so crazy, where you can't make all these calculations. The first thing you do, you're running and bring something. Yeah, okay, you're in charge, you're going to do, you're going to take care of the people. That's true, but... Rashi is detecting that there is a little bit of lacking in that intense excitement that a Jew is supposed to have when you're doing a mitzvah. And the same over here is with Moshe Rabbeinu. When Jews are being threatened, this is supposed to shake you up to the core where you yourself throw everything on the line and you yourself will go out and you will fight. Even though based on, even though you can't have any argument on Moshe because he did everything correct. Oh, but... There was something lacking in that, in that overdrive that he should have had in, in, in this war. And, so what was his punishment? His punishment was that his hands became heavy. Meaning to say, since he did not throw himself into the mitzvah. Again, as we said before, it's not even a real mitzvah. It was just a self-understood mitzvah. Self-understood. Yet, his, his, his problem, his deficiency was that there was not enough investment and enough excitement in it. So what happened was, even the little bit that he did want to do, even his contribution that he was going to do came very hard to him. In other words, if you're not doing it the way you're supposed to, so then even that which you say, There's so much I do want to do, even that doesn't work out so well. Or a little deeper than that, or a little stronger than that, is as follows. Had Moshe Rabbeinu gone into overdrive with total Messiris Nefesh and without thinking that much, known that he is going out with the people, even the, 
then Moshe Rabbeinu would have broken that spell that we spoke about earlier, that God had distanced himself from the Jewish people and said, I am allowing this to work itself out naturally. Had Moshe Rabbeinu gone into this war without all these calculations with Mesiris Nefesh, with the fervor of his Mesiris Nefesh, of his Neshama, then what would have happened? It would have caused that God too would have not calculated all the calculations. And he would have stopped this that we said earlier that the Jewish people were in a state where, na- where they had to work through nature. The miracles would have came back and they would have won the war completely miraculously. Because Moshe Rabbeinu was acting so... In other words, he went and he validated and endorsed the natural element of it, that everything has to be done naturally, militarily, strategically. Because Moshe was doing all these things that way, he endorsed that. So that's why he, he remained within the natural. Instead of entering into the spiritual, he remained within the natural. And naturally, if you hold your hands up for a long time, they become heavy. So Moshe's hands became heavy. So we can say that the hands becoming heavy was a natural phenomenon, but Rashi says it happened. Because had he not done this, he would have been in a miracle. It would have been like when the Kohanim are benching the people, his hands are lifted up because they're carrying the Shekhinah automatically. Without this, he went back to the natural state of holding your hands up and it hurts. So he had that hard time in this. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal teaching. And a very, very, very important instruction for all of us. Especially in our generation. Because we know that, the, first of all, the war of Amalek is a war, it's an ongoing war, as we said earlier. Especially, you see, every, every story in Torah is eternal. Especially this story where God explicitly says, write it down. He tells Yeshua, tell, tell Yeshua to write this down, which means Hashem wants this to be permanently inscribed. Number two, since Hashem, there's a mitzvah that we should remember this story all the time. Because we need to erase Amalek we have to bear it in our mind all the time. And not only that, but the, the, especially our generation. Because we said earlier, the war of Amalek is at the beginning of Jewish history, at the end of Jewish history. So the generation of Mashiach has to take a lesson from this war. And not only from the general idea of Amalek, that we have to fight Amalek, but from the method of how the war is fought and how the war, war needs to be fought. You see, here's the thing. We said earlier that Amalek could not start up with the Jews that were observant, the Jews that were doing mitzvahs, the Jews that were God-fearing, because they were protected by the, by the walls, by the clouds of glory. And we saw already when the Egyptians came after the Jewish people that when they were throwing missiles, the cloud was intercepting it all. So there was nothing that can, that can penetrate. The Jews were safe. Who was it? It was a, a couple of Jews, just a few of them, who for whatever reason, even though they saw all the miracles that went in Mitzrayim, they had Yetzahara, evil inclination, and they did not submit themselves to God the way they're supposed to. And that's why they were cast outside of the camp. And it was them that were being harmed that Amalek was starting up with them, antagonizing them or whatever it was. They were throwing stones at them. I don't know what they were doing, but there was something going on with these Jews. And Moshe Rabbeinu goes out, sends the military, the best of the military to go out and fight. But here is where a person, and, and that equivalent to that of course is, we understand that Amalek is a physical Amalek and there's a spiritual Amalek. Amalek means doubt, questions. So the Jewish people are surrounded by the clouds of glory. Today's days as well, even though we don't see it. The clouds of glory that there are are the Torah and the mitzvahs that we do. When we learn Torah and we do mitzvahs, we create shmira, we create protection. A protection that protects our souls and protects us physically as well. The mezuzah protects us and other things protect us. 
And we have all kinds, against what? Against all the dark influences that are preying on Jewish souls. Amalek means, is the same gematria, Hasidic masters tell us, Amalek is the same gematria as suffix. Suffix means doubts. There are all kinds of spiritual forces. There are entities out in the world that try to cool, that try to place doubt into a Jew. They try to pull Jews away. So many people that are being ensnared into, uh, into, into whether it's cults or other, other belief systems or atheists and all kinds of things that are pulling Jews away, pulling Jews, God forbid, to assimilation. And, to, and how many we have, you know, maybe a few million Jews that are keeping Torah and mitzvot very few. And then we have millions of Jews that are outside of what we might say the clouds of glory. And here you have someone, a great scholar, a great rabbi, who studies and learns Torah all day long and is in yeshiva, or sits and prays and is very, very spiritual and very, very holy. And he sits whichever in a, in a community and he thinks to himself, you know what, my, I'm insular, thank God I'm protected. My family is also protected, thank God we created a good community. We have a very good cheder, we have a very good yeshiva, we have a very good, we have a good neighborhood, and we're living in this closed-in area, and we're protected, and no one is harming us, thank God. Today's world is not so protected, but, but, but even if someone feels that they are protected, and they are kind of secure, and then there are Jews that are out there, is it my responsibility to take care of Jews that are out there, that are outside of the cloud of glory? Is it my job to protect these Jews from be catching a cold and a malay cold? Of God forbid becoming cold and disconnected and totally chas v'shalem, severed from the God of Israel. No, it's not my problem. It's not my problem. Let others deal with that. That's not for me. I'm, 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 I'm a holy person. I'm involved in Kedush, especially. You know, you want me to have an effect on these people? I can do that. I will pray. If you want me to have an effect on them? I will pray. I will daven, that I can do. I will say tehillim on their behalf. I'll give tzedak on their behalf. I'll try to do some kind of spiritual effects on behalf of the Jews that are out there. And if you want me to work with other people, I understand, I can work. Maybe I can have, I, I do, I do influence other Jews. Maybe Jews that are less scholarly than me. People that are less, uh, people that need to be educated and learning. Ah, so I don't... Even though I feel I'm superior because I'm a great Torah scholar and I'm a, I have so much knowledge, the fact that I'm even paying attention and giving a shear to simple people, that, that's already lowering myself. But don't expect me to go outside of the clouds of glory, to go out into the street, to go into places and to look for Jews that are outside and disconnected, that's not something for me that's going to place me in a vulnerable place and that might hurt my Yerushamayim, my God, because of me just walking into places that are not so holy, this might harm me. So we see from here, from this story, that this is not the case. When the, God forbid there is attack on the Jewish people, and even if those that are being threatened are people that are outside of the camp, who has to go protect them? Who has to go fight? So first of all, Yeshua has selected who? He selected God-fearing people. That means He selected really, really, really special holy Jews. And it wasn't like... And they, in other words, they, 
Yes, these holy people have to go out into the streets, have to go out of the yeshiva, have to go out of the ghettos, so to speak, and go out into the bigger world and look for Jews and recognize and, and, and try to protect these people from, God forbid, being pulled in and being infected by Amalek. And even a Jew who's, we know, we say about, there's a type of Jew called Terasa Yom Nasei. Terasa Yom Nasei means someone whose Torah is his profession. And this guy is not supposed to stop from Torah all day. Even a mitzvah is not supposed to stop. He's supposed to learn Torah all day long. So this person can say, no, for sure not me, because my Torah is my, is, my, is my profession. The answer is Yeshua. Yeshua was a person whose Torah was a profession. The Torah, the Torah says about Yeshua that he was Moshe's most dedicated servant. He never left Moshe's tent. So you're talking about someone who 24-7 is only learning Torah. And yet who was the one who had to go fight to protect the Jews that are outside the camp, it was Yeshua. And not only that, even Moshe Rabbeinu, who's like, who is fighting the war, who's in charge of the spiritual battle, and is doing everything on the higher plane to help these Jews that are outside, he's defending them. But he, even he is not exempt of getting his hands dirty. Even though even he cannot claim and say, I'm going to do my work up here in heaven. But the actual work of going out to meet the people on the college campuses, in the places all out, that's not for me. Leave that for someone else. So we say there is no such a thing. Even Moshe Rabbeinu himself needs to get out. Should go out of the camp himself. And do the work. Because there's a fire burning, God forbid. And then there are no calculations. You don't methodically sit and think. When there is a fire burning, like, you know, when, a, when, a, when a God forbid there's a threat and a fire burning in someone's house, they don't make no calculations. When chas there's a danger to your members of your own family. Just run, like, and that's what the Abishter expects of us. Each and every one of us, we need to increase our effect. See, so many Jews already have, thank God, picked up on this that are Jews that are not observant, not involved in Yiddishkeit, are waiting for someone to reach out to them. So many Jews from all over are doing that already, but we can do so much more. If all of us just take the time, maybe just once a week, to think, who am I going to influence this week? Who do I know that's just out there? A person that, who can use a Shabbos invitation. A person who can use a mitzvah, put on a tefillin with him one time. Put a mezuzah on his door. Maybe I can email him a Torah thought once a week. Something that I think he, can, he or she can relate to. And recognize that this is all our job to reach to, to every single person. And no one can say that I have something more important to do. If Moshe Rabbeinu was criticized for he himself, even though he wasn't doing a war, for he himself not going out on the actual on the actual into the battlefield to fight himself, uh, if, if, if Moshe didn't have an exemption, no one has an exemption. And it's up to all of us. And as we reach out to our brethren, to every single Jew, and draw them closer to Hashem, may we merit to see the final conclusion of Muhammad Hashem Ba'amolek, the destruction of God, of the Hashem's destruction of all, every threat and every force that stands against and threatens the Jewish people, and may we merit to see the ultimate redemption now.
Sada 